Welcome to the Rational Egoist. Back with us again is the amazing James Stevens Valiant, and we are going today to talk about one of the three furies of libertarianism, as they were called, and it is going to be the one and only Isabel Patterson. First of all, Jim, welcome back to the show. It's always great to have you. It's always great to be here, my friend. Uh, wow. Are we doing some fascinating conversations about some fascinating and important people? I mean, Very much so. and Henry Hazlitt, and, oh my gosh. And if we're going to talk about people of that scale and dimension in terms of having an impact on the 20th century cause of liberty and uh, the revival of classical liberalism in the 20th century, Isabel Patterson has to be front and center in this conversation just as much as economists Need oh sure i'd be you know easy. isabel patterson's book the god of the machine ayn rand said of it this book can change the world uh, and for, you know and ayn rand didn't just give out compliments willy-nilly <laughs> no she <laughs> did not she, nor did she write positive reviews in her magazines uh willy-nilly and she had high praise for the brilliant writing style uh and quality and content of this book here, th I have a first edition, 1943 hardcover first edition of God of the Machine by Isabel wow. Patterson, the book that Ayn Rand so positively reviewed in the Objectivist newsletter, writing the review herself. Um, because she was a for a time, for, for several years, she was a friend, a good friend and correspondent of Isabel Patterson. Isabel Patterson's book in 1943, 1943 is considered a seminal year in the development of uh, libertarianism or classical liberal thought in America, and for good reason, because uh, John Chamberlain says it best. John Chamberlain was the editorial director at Time Magazine, Time Life, for Henry Luce, the founder of Time Magazine, and he in the 1940s was editorial director there. He'd worked for the New York Times, another big, he was a big journalist in the middle of the 20th century. And he, in his own memoir, puts it like this. He says, it was no Austrian economist who converted me from my dim-witted socialist ways, because he admitted he was a socialist through his, her, his whole early life, and really through most of the 30s even, he was a socialist, and he admits it, and it was, it was wrong, and, and uh, you know, when, when Stalin and Hitler, when what they were doing really came to light, uh, there were a lot of people who questioned their socialism. And the more honest ones did. But you know, John Chamberlain puts it so well, he says, it wasn't any Austrian economist who converted me from socialism. It wasn't your Mises or Hazlitt's. It was three women in their 1943. What they did is they morally and passionately defended the an older American system of individualism and liberty. And that's what got me. <laughs> that's what that's what, what converted me to the, the free market. And when someone like John Chamberlain, who was at one point the editor of the Freeman Magazine, and for a long time, the most popular book reviewer at the National Review, for example, when someone like that says it, uh, it is of uh, significance. And I happen to agree with him in terms of the effect. I mean, Ayn Rand had, as even uh, Isabel Patterson's biographer, Professor Stephen Cox, he wrote a, a, an amazing biography that I will compliment in many ways, but there are things I have critical to say about it. But his uh, biography of Isabel Patterson, The Woman in the Dynamo, uh, it, it's, he admits that uh, even though he's talking about Isabel Patterson, Ayn Rand's popularity was much greater, and she had a much greater influence than those other two ladies. Um, and in effect, their influence was superseded by Rand's popularity. Jim, you got to tell us who the three ladies are and what happened oh. in 1943. You left oh, us hanging. Another 
Oh, the other books, yes. We've got Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which put Ayn Rand on the map. That was a big hit for Ayn Rand. It gave Ayn Rand a, you know, a national and international reputation. She became one of America's best-selling authors. They made a big Warner Brothers Gary Cooper movie out of The Fountainhead. So Ayn Rand, boom, The Fountainhead, 1943, uh, is sort of when Ayn Rand arrives on the American literary scene, if you will. Uh, Rose Wilder Lane wrote an important book. The Of the three, probably the least important and substantive because it was the least morally revolutionary but nonetheless it was a passionate defense of individualism and individual freedom from a classical liberal standpoint she herself unlike rand or patterson was a former communist um but she had emerged from that she famously uh rose wilder lane she was the daughter of laura Engels wilder the author of the little house on the prairie series and some people have said basically it was Rose Wilder Lane who ghost wrote those books for her mom based on her mom's recollections and experiences. And of course, that became a famous television series in the 1970s, yeah. Little House on the Prairie. Very important children's books in, in the course of children's literature in America. Some of the most important are those Little House books. And Isabel Patterson's Discovery of Freedom came out in 1943. Uh, uh, Albert J. Nock, who was a, a famous literary figure from the 1930s, um, said that uh, Isabel Patterson and, Ro and uh, Rose Wilder Lane were the only nonfiction authors he knew of that spoke sense <laughs> on the matter of politics or could sensibly uh, express capitalism uh, since the days of class the classical liberals. And uh, he had a really good point there. There was nothing like that going on. You know, in 1950, the famous uh, writer Lionel Trilling basically declared the defense of the free market dead. There is no intellectual right in America anymore. That's it. He declared the intellectual right dead, dead in 1950. And, of course, he was completely unaware of what had happened in 1943 that was going on under his radar screen. Uh, so, but that gives you the idea of how important these three books were. There really is no passionate, principled, moral defense for individualism and freedom until these ladies arrive on scene. Isabel Patterson, I want to say this too, it, her book, The God of the Machine, is extraordinary. It's revolutionary in a way even the, the discovery of freedom is not. The woman integrates, uh, uh, as a person, you, know, you, ha you have to be well-educated just to sense how well-educated Isabel Patterson was. She knew history like Few people ever knew history, from Thucydides to Polybius, from Edward Gibbon to Theodore Mommsen to Lord Acton to Henry Adams. The whole chapter in her book, The Virgin and the Dynamo, is sort of a basically an answer to Henry Adams' Virgin and the Dynamo, maybe the most important American historian of the 19th century, Henry Adams. But Lord Acton and the German historians like Theodore Mommsen, Edward Gibbon, the ancient historian, this woman was... Uh, so erudite on, the, on his that's just history philosophy the woman knew she could dip in at, with this enormous erudition she was one of the most enormously well-read and like henry hazlitt the guy we just discussed she had practically zero for she had even less formal education than henry hazlitt henry hazlitt couldn't finish college she barely had any school primary schooling for a few years and uh, she had some some informal education it didn't really work out, get along. She didn't even get along with her teachers when she was a kid. She was that uh, ornery and original. Uh, so she was all an autodidact, 
all completely self-educated. And this woman was so well-read in literature, philosophy, history. Um, and her book, God of the Machine, is an integration of that. You have to be extremely well-educated just to see how amazingly erudite this woman was because she understood history and philosophy at a deep level and the writers in those fields at a very profound level. And what she did was revolutionize the field of social science almost in The God of the Machine. She rejected every previous methodology, approach to discussing the humanities and the social sciences, methodologically speaking. She rejected determinism in a very profound way. And so, of course, Marxism and all that and the Frankfurt School, all that's gone, obviously. But more than that, um, she is developing a whole new methodology based on free will and the power of ideas two things we were talking about with Mises, for example, and we can talk about with Rand. And one thing that all three of these important figures shared was a belief in free will, whether or not they could justify it like Ayn Rand could is a different point. Both both Mises and Patterson were very much aware that free will is a necessary element in terms of understanding the social sciences. And both of them understood the power of ideas, as we discussed, Isabel Patterson in particular. Now, Again, not sure if they understood the relationship between thinking and free will, ideas and free will, but both, like Ayn Rand, were, were in this sense very different from the other social scientists of the 20th century or the 19th. They had a dynamic view of human development. Uh, they believed that you in new human possible, not a static view or deterministic view <laughs> at all. And so her whole approach to the subject of political philosophy and God of the Machine is basically a book on political philosophy uh, is methodologically revolutionary. In that book, it is really her nonfiction, great nonfiction book. Okay, In pause for one second because sure. I, I want to talk God of the Machine. Yeah. But Isabel Patterson didn't just all of a sudden spring forth in 1943 with God of the Machine. Oh, she did not. So, so where did she come from what did she do before that was written well she was well she describes it as that she was born in january of 1886 and she describes it as follows she said i was born in the middle of lake huron and thank goodness there was an island or no she said, unfortunately there was an island in the middle of lake huron i'm sorry i've ruined it there i think it was fortunate she said unfortunate i think it was a blessing to humanity that there was an island there and that she wasn't born in the middle of lake huron but she was born in canadian territory she wasn't even born an american citizen but on an island in the middle of lake huron by sort of pioneer type people uh very much like rose wilder lane she grew up in the west in the american frontier her family was not well to do and they were always struggling. Um, she did not respect her father, and she just sort of pitied her mother, and she was never really close to her family. Um, sort of the reverse from Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand respected her dad, had problems with mom, and was connected to, to a larger family, connected to her family in much closer, say, than Is Isabel Patterson was. To her, they were just a bunch of strange weirdos, mostly in her family. She didn't think much of family. There's so many things where she could see her emotionally on the same wavelength with Ayn Rand. She didn't think much of family as such. <laughs> but her family was moving around the West a lot when she was young. Um, she basically grew up on a cattle ranch in Alberta, Canada. Now, get this. When she was still just a teenager, she actually witnesses the Sundance ceremony of the Blackfoot Indians. The way she puts it is so funny. She goes, 
Um, I grew up in the Wild West, and so my youth was boring. <laughs> she was, you can see what a clever writer she was. She was a really brilliant writer. But again, no, she had an extraordinary youth because she could actually see. And it, it, the Wild West informed her view. She, her family lived very, at various times in Utah, where she attended for a time a, a, a you know little house school. She didn't get along with the teacher at all, but the teacher thought that she didn't really need her. <laughs> so the teacher kind of left her alone to do her own reading. You know, she would read her own stuff. She was a voracious reader. She'd pick up books everywhere she could. And her knowledge of the West really did inform her, and her experience in the West very much did inform her idea that, for example, she said one of the great things about the, the Western North, uh, North America before World War I is that people could basically do whatever they wanted so long as they didn't make a big noise about it. <laughs> there was, she loved the sort of anarchistic wild freedom and she knew that that brought out the best in people. She, she would, in her correspondence, she said, there's a civilized uh, benevolence where if someone asked, if a group of Blackfoot Indians came up and asked her family for food, they would get it. People cooperated with one another. There was a cooperative benevolence when there was no requirement at all and she, she at, from that point forward, believed benevolence was really brought out when people are freed and left by themselves. Uh, that's the only real kind of benevolence. And she, she thought just the opposite about socialism. She thought that was busybody getting into people's business. She didn't like that. She distrusted people being busybodies and getting into people other people's business, even when she was young. So you can see that these experiences uh, sort of shaped her view of the power of freedom, the power of the individual. She saw civilization coming uh, to the West, but she saw the freedom uh, that was involved. You know, as the West sort of closed off as a frontier, a lot of people were saying, well, that's it. We can't, we can't have the wild freedom that we once had, the liberty we once had in America. Now we have to think about fixed resources and static. She did not. She absolutely rejected this idea. She rejected the idea when it was initially suggested by important writers in the beginning of the 20th century. No, no, no. That gives us a lesson. The, the freedom, the almost anarchistic freedom of the American West gives us a lesson in uh, how, we should, how, how we should maintain that environment, even in a civilized, developed context. Um, uh, she uh, had some very... Uh, classic American individualist ideas that came from that experience. As I say, she was a voracious, voracious reader. In 1912, she traveled all over the country. She had the most extraordinary experiences and a, a really an interesting life. In 1912, she was on a, a Wright, uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright biplane as a passenger during an exhibition flight. And she would do those kind of things because she just was a liver of life, an adventurer, someone who'd go out and do it. And uh, she had a lot of respect for folks with gumption like that. <laughs> she, she wasn't interested in politics. She was starting to read voraciously. At the, something called, in Spokane, Washington, there was a small newspaper called the Inland Herald, I think it was. She first worked in the business office there as the secretary for the editor. She would correct the guy's English, which she thought was completely mangled. And the, her, the editor said, well, my previous secretary never corrected my English. And she just said, he, she probably just corrected it in the correspondence for you without telling you. And every time she would take dictation from him, uh, she would have these scowls. Oh, God, as he would mangle the English language. And so he said, well, I'm going to hire another secretary now. <laughs> 
<laughs> but how would you like to be the editorial writer for the paper? And she literally responded, I'm not into politics. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't care less about politics. But she became dubbed the editorial writer. And that's how she got interested in politics as such, is by being the editorial writer for a short-lived magazine in Spokane, Washington, or newspaper, excuse me, in Spokane, Washington. She would later, of course, become assistant to the literary editor of the New York uh, Tribune, later the New York Herald Tribune, which in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s was an extremely important uh, uh, periodical, and its literary section was extremely important. She, she worked for uh, uh, Burton Roscoe, the literary editor there, and she became their chief literary critic, in effect. And in the 1920s and 30s, she was a feared like Henry Hazlitt. She was a feared literary critic in the golden age of American literature. Uh, she really was. And if she didn't like it, she became friendly with and she knew Sinclair Lewis. Um, she liked the work of Willa Cather. That if she didn't like your work, you know, famous writers would kowtow to her. Uh, 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 she was also a novelist. Uh, during World War II, during World War I, she published a couple of, uh, of novels. They had reasonable success. <laughs> the Shadow Riders, The Magpie's Nest. Later, she wrote a novel, largely autobiographical, never ask the end, largely autobiographical uh, novel. But she wasn't so much a great novelist as she was a great columnist. And she was also a literary critic with a very definite political angle. So that by the late 1920s, she was able to insert into her column for the New York Herald Tribune a whole bunch of political ideas. And so, for example, when the Great Depression started, she became a ferocious critic of the president at the time, Herbert Hoover. She thought all of his solutions were wrong. She thought, this is not the time to be facing spending. She was not, right. She was right. She said, it's not the time to be doing all the things that Hoover is doing. Um, and uh, she was a ferocious, she would later become friendly with President Herbert Hoover long after he's left office. She would later have a friendly correspondence and actually meet Herbert Hoover. But the point is, she was one of, famously, one of the most ferocious critics of Herbert Hoover. And like Ayn Rand, in 1932, she voted for FDR because he opposed prohibition. And you get a sense just from that, in her columns in the 1920s and 30s, she absolutely was opposed to censorship, any even censorship of, of communists. Uh, despite her anti-communism, she was ferocious about censorship. She was ferocious about the prohibition. And yet she was also a ferocious defender of the free market, thinking the tariffs are not going to help us get out of the depression. More government spending isn't going to get us out of the depression. And so she was a ferocious critic of both Herbert Hoover and the New Deal. When Social Security came along, <laughs> the Social Security Act came, you know, Ayn Rand famously said, well, they're taking your money anyway, may as well get some of it back, get what you can back from the government that stole it by force. Isabel Patterson wouldn't even do, I don't care how much of my money they stole. She refused to sign up for the Social Security program from the beginning. On principle, she's never going to participate in this thing. So you can see even from the 1920s and 30s, she's a unique kind of thing. Sure a defender of classical liberalism, both civil liberties and economic liberties from a sort of a radical individualist perspective. And I, I think that sets the context. By the late right. 1930s, she's, a, she's well known as a literary critic and a political curmudgeon <laughs> who's uh, giving both sides of the yes. political fence a hard time. And that's the yeah. context for God of the Machine in 1943. Yeah. And at some point, she becomes friends with Ayn Rand. 
Oh, yes. And it's, well, I don't know, it's relatively well known. When, when I usually read commentary, this is what I hear about how much she taught Ayn Rand, especially about American history. What I find is less talk and talked about is the influence that Ayn Rand had on Isabel Patterson in relation to ethics. Uh, a couple things. One, I, I've read somewhere that she ultimately swayed uh, Isabel Patterson to her point of view on ethics. Also, I, I just read today that Isabel Patterson was adamant with Rand in telling her that her ethical theory was revolutionary. It yes. wasn't Nietzschean. It wasn't from Max Sterner. It was, it was no, concrete it, and real. Yes. And a real concrete human in action. She said it's not the floating, you know, swirling nonsense of Nietzsche. She, she said the ego is an actual, it's uh, it, ego is a person. It's not th this floating abstraction like you just said. And the influence came through in my favorite chapter in God of the Machine, and that's the humanitarian with the guillotine. So before we get to the God and Machine, I just want you to tell us a little bit about the relationship between Rand and Isabel Patterson. Well, that is one thing that I, I, I do recommend the book, uh, <laughs> The Woman in the Dynamo by Professor Stephen Cox. Uh, as I say, I, you know, I had dinner with Professor Cox and did nothing but praise him for that dinner. But I do have major objections. And my major objections mostly surround his discussion of Ayn Rand's re relationship with Isabel Patterson. It was an important relationship, but he doesn't understand objectivism as such. And so he has a hard time even understanding the conflict between the two ladies. Um, and he has uh, just a, simply a false view of her on certain things. He credits, Stephen Cox basically credits Isabel Patterson with uh, it changing Ayn Rand from a Nietzschean and giving her any real interest in classical liberal politics. That is demonstrably false. Ayn Rand wrote in night to H.L. Mencken uh, in 1934 that he was the greatest exponent of her, uh, what her philosophy was, individualism. And of course, H.L. Mencken was another great opponent of the New Deal from a sort of uh, individualist perspective. Um, she was already a reader of Mencken. She knew Henry Hazlitt personally long before the fountain had years before the fountain had came out and developed a close relationship with both Hazlitt and his wife uh, even before the fountain had came out when Isabel Patterson and Ayn Rand first met Ayn Rand remembered the meeting Isabel Patterson did not simply did not when the uh, people know that Ayn Rand worked on the Wendell Wilkie campaign like Henry Hazlitt Ayn Rand was very concerned that Roosevelt was running for a third term and so she, although Ayn Rand had qualms about Wendell Wilkie, she went out and campaigned for Wendell Wilkie to stop this endless presidency of FDR. Through that, Ayn Rand made several new contact, political contacts, people like Channing Pollock, and she finally had a meeting with Albert J. Nock and Channing Pollock. The, uh, Isabel Patterson was supposed to be at the meeting, and she completely FTA'd. <laughs> didn't even show. Well, Ayn Rand still wanted to meet Isabel Patterson again, so she went out of her way. Ayn Rand contacted Isabel Patterson, I want to talk to you, I want to meet you. And then Isabel Patterson was impressed. And it was in around, I think it was 1941, 19, it was the early 1940s, where they actually started becoming friends. Ayn Rand was still living in New York City. And Ayn Rand would go over to the New York Herald Tribune and help, Isabel Patterson had a little crew around her who would help her sort of uh, do copy editing and other stuff, uh, do grunt work in the newspaper while they sort of did these salons at the New York Herald Tribune. Uh, and 
Ayn Rand would be seen sitting, literally sitting at the feet of Isabel Patterson as Isabel Patterson would talk about American history and politics. Now, we have demonstrated proof that Ayn Rand was already very much an advocate of the American system of government when she was a teenager in Russia. Ayn Rand's first book was anti-communist. <laughs> in 1933, all you have to do is look at her Rand's notes and letters to see that she was uh, a defender of the American system of government and a ferocious enemy of both uh, Hitler and Stalin. Uh, in her correspondence and notes, she makes that very, very plain long before she ever met Isabel Patterson. So... Uh, Cox gives too much uh, Nietzschean to, I mean, Ayn Rand was already a, in her 20s. Ayn Rand, in her first philosophical notes, was systematically arguing against Nietzschean ideas in favor of objectivity, logic, principles and ethics, you know, on and on and on and on. Uh, she believed in a principled ethics uh, against Nietzsche, for example. She believed in uh, the possibility of objectivity. And so uh, I think Cox is simply wrong here. Um, on the other hand, and you can see where the two ladies would get together in so many ways. They had similar attitudes, similar attitudes about feminism, similar attitudes about uh, um, all kinds of things. All Family, for example, as I said earlier, you could really see that these ladies were in many ways on the same wavelength emotionally. Boy, they got along. And as you say, Isabel Patterson praised uh, the Fountainhead to the skies. Even before the Fountainhead had come out, Ayn Rand had sort of explained her ethical philosophy to Isabel Patterson. And Isabel Patterson was never really, and I'll, she convinced her of some aspects of egoism, but did Isabel Patterson become a philosophical egoist? No. There was a critical moment, for example, when Ayn Rand said, now Pat, this is what her friends called her, Isabel Patterson, Pat, um, I will explain to you, You do you believe that uh, even parenting is selfish? No, no, it's obviously altruistic. Ayn Rand said, I'm going to convince you that the only decent kind of parent is a selfish parent. She did. And in their correspondence, Ayn Rand began to say, you see, there's an in inevitable egoism here. Uh, Isabel Patterson is resisting. She sees the in the humanitarian with the guillotine. She sees the connection between the do-gooders and the totalitarians. Terrorists and dictators are what humanitarians become, she says, point blank. She defines the humanitarian as this, someone who's live for, yeah, if you're going to go that far with your altruism, you are a dictator, right? She obviously got that idea in a generalized way from Ayn Rand. But did she ever really become the egoist in the sense that she understood that's the ethical system, period, outside of even politics? No, I don't think Isabel Patterson ever really became. In fact, she resisted Ayn Rand on several of her integrating aspects of her philosophy. The real scope of egoism or the real scope of reason or even though they were both believers in free will, the limitations of a teleological or free will perspective. Ayn Rand was the one who supplied that, as opposed to uh, sort of the more religious teleolo teleology. That's a two-bit fancy philosophical world. The, that there is purpose in the universe. That human purpose really does have an efficacious effect on history. That does inform Isabel Patterson as a social scientist. She believes you cannot understand social science without understanding the power of ideas and that human beings have free will. It is purposeful history. It's teleological in that sense. But she was almost a religious teleologist. 
She, in fact, one of her articles she wrote for William Buckley's National Review, she kind of questions the application of Darwinianism to humanity. There must have wow. been some human intervention, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, but, you know, what's so funny is that I think, the, uh, just as a little aside, I think science has kind of caught up to Isabel Patterson here in a way. Just as humans domesticated dogs, the difference between a poodle and a wolf is man all man-made, right? The difference between these little toy toy dogs and a wolf, literally, they all should be wolves, right? And the same species. All the various breeds are man-made. Um, similarly, though, recent uh, evolutionary biologists have said, well, didn't humans domesticate themselves? Didn't, by our own mating selections, didn't we shape our physicalities? And Isabel Patterson would have jumped on that, I think, positively, saying, yes, even humans are the product of human choice and teleology. Although she never had this uh, idea, she was almost a religious teleologist, and she was a deist. And there, too, Ayn Rand and uh, Isabel Patterson 